Well, thank you. It's good to see you all this morning. The exercise we're going to engage in this morning is really not a, a kind of public lecture exercise, but rather an attempt to read together some passages from Aquinas on a somewhat subtle topic, a little bit of conceptual austerity for early in the morning. I think about how to name God analogically. What does it mean to talk about who or what God is? You might say metaphysically, philosophically. And to focus our discussion, I'm going to really read and comment some texts. I'm going to begin with some commentary, some background explanation, and look at some texts that are not the easiest to interpret, but also which have historically been very significant in debate. There's debate about whether Aquinas' whole approach is right, and then there's debate about how to understand Aquinas' approach. There are Thomist versus non-Thomist quarrels, and there are Thomist versus Thomist quarrels. And I'm going to refer more to the latter, actually, but a little bit to the former. So let's go ahead and set the scene by talking about someone who came before Thomas Aquinas, and that's Dionysius the Areopagite. We don't know who Dionysius the Areopagite was because it was a pseudonym used by a person we would now call a father of the church, perhaps a 5th or 6th century Neoplatonic Christian thinker somewhere in the Byzantine Empire and a person familiar with Christological disputes that were happening in the 5th century. Dionysius wrote a number of books about naming God and knowing God, works like the mystical theology, the ecclesiastical hierarchy, and the divine names. Now, those texts were in a certain way rediscovered in the 13th century, and Albert the Great, if I'm not mistaken, the Dominican who founded the University of Cologne and was one of Aquinas' first professors, or his main professor, his teacher, who he collaborated with. Albert the Great wrote, if I'm not mistaken, the first commentary on the divine names in the high Middle Ages. And Aquinas wrote one following. So they believed that this Greek church father was quite important and worked to integrate his thought into their mainstream approaches in 13th century theology for thinking about who God is or what we may know and may not know about God. Now, I'm not going to get into great detail about Dionysius, but leave it to say that the basic texts, text on divine naming that influences Aquinas especially is in the work on the divine names, chapter 7, paragraph 3. And there, Dionysius talks about three ways we can know God, which in Latin, he wrote in Greek, but in Latin are termed per viam causalitatis, per viam negationis or remotionis, and per viam eminentiae. By the way of causality, by the way of negation or remotion, and by the way of preeminence. Knowing God, so Aquinas is you know, pretty careful. He says in the if you've read or are about to read question three of the Summa, question three in the, in the prima parts of the Summa comes right after question two. Question two is the demonstrations of the existence of what we call God, right? How to think about what we call God by philosophical arguments, metaphysical arguments. I mean, they're not Aquinas' only arguments for the existence of God. He has about 14 spread throughout his different works, but they're the famous five ways. And then in the beginning of question three, he says, we can say more what God is not than we may say what God is. 
So then Aquinas builds up a whole kind of study of what we may say about God in strongly negative terms. God is not temporal, God is not corporeal, God is not finite. In questions 11, 3 through 11. And then he thinks about how we know God in questions 12 and 13. So it's as if he actually does work on the business of knowing God, something about God philosophically, especially knowing what God is not. And then he looks at how did we know what we knew about God? Modern people tend to put the epistemological questions first. How can we know anything? How do I know there's a chair over there? And then they get into the business of thinking about the structure of reality. Aquinas goes the opposite direction. He looks at the question of, of the truth of reality and the truth about God. And then he looks at, afterwards, the epistemological staircase. Okay, we went up to the second floor. How did we get there? Let's go back and look at the structure of the staircase, having already explored the second floor. And so in question 13, he's doing that. And he's saying, how did we get to think about God and what God is and what God is not? Well, we did it first by way of causality, by saying um, that God can be known from his effects because the effects resemble the cause. So we started from the effects, meaning creatures, and we determined that there are certain properties or attributes we could rightly designate of God, name in God, like goodness, being, wisdom, based on him being the cause of these properties in the world. But secondly, we had to carefully qualify. God is not like creatures. He's unlike them, and so by the way of remotion, which means kind of removing, actually, or conceptual removing, or negation, we've negated finite properties of God, or the finite modes of being of God, of the things we experience in this world. Okay? So we started from the effects that are creatures. We've said that there must be some kind of likeness uh, between creatures and God, but we've negated the imperfect way in which the imperfect modes of being of the things we experience when speaking of God. And then finally, we can speak about supereminence or preeminence of those analogical descriptions in God. So, like goodness, right? I mean, you can talk about the certain the, the creation, everything that exists in some way is good. God is the author of that which is good and must himself in some way be good, but he's not good in the way creatures are, he's good in some supereminent way. He's good in a way that's wholly unlike creatures, in, the, in that it's, it pertains to his infinite perfection, the infinite perfection of the goodness of God. Okay, so this is the kind of, I'm just giving you a background sketch of the kind of thinking pattern he's adopting from Dionysius. Now he's going he's gonna to mention, so I'm now going to turn to the text in question 13, and really what I'm going to look here is at briefly, Article 1, Article 2, Article 5, and maybe Article 6, and probably Article 11. So, four or five articles. I'm going to try to spend more time, especially on Article 2 and Article 5. And I'm not going to, I'm going to skip the objections. The objections, I'm skipping them. And I'm skipping the responses. I'm just going to look at the corpus, the body of the article, you know? So, in the first article he's asks whether a name can be given to God. Let me read the, the corpus. I answer that since according to the philosopher Aristotle, words are signs of ideas and ideas are the similitudes of things, it is evident that words function in, sig in the signification of things through the conception of the intellect. He's just saying your language is realistic in that you're, it, when it denotes reality, 
you can think conceptually about reality. I can say this room right now is full of homo sapiens, and this is true. My language is true because it, it's, it's based on my conceptual thinking, and I'm noting conceptually that you really are human beings. It's just common sense realism. It follows, therefore, that we can give a name to anything insofar as we can understand it. Now, so he's saying, okay, I can call you homo sapiens, but can I say, when I say God exists, that's different. It's pretty hard to say that it's not, you know, it's like, God, I don't have an empirical experience of an animal in the room that is God. Okay. But can we, therefore, can we speak of God? Well, now it was shown above that in this life we cannot see the essence of God. But we can know God from, he gets in, article, in question 12, but we can know God from creatures as their cause. Okay, now if you're clued in and you've been following the Dionysian pattern of his thinking, which you wouldn't pick up on if I hadn't just named it, if you would just open the Summa Cold, you wouldn't notice that he just referred there to the via causalitatis, okay, the way of causality. But also by way of excellence and remotion, that's the way of preeminence and negation. He doesn't some, always put them in the same order. Sometimes Aquinas talks about deriving knowledge of God as the cause of creatures, then negate, then uh, talking about how it's supereminent. Like, so for example, God is good because he's the cause of goodness in creatures, but God is supereminently good, and God's goodness is wholly unknown to us or somewhat incomprehensible because of God's transcendence. So sometimes he puts the negation aspect last emphasize the transcendence and sort of incomprehensibility of the divine. Yes, we can say God is good. We must say God is supereminently good. We don't know what the, the supereminent goodness of God is because of his utter transcendence. Sometimes he puts it in the other order, and he says God is known as the cause of the creatures, creaturely goodness to be good. We negate of him the finite, the finite modes of being good, and then we talk about him being supereminently good eternally and infinitely good. And there's actually kind of two different readings of Aquinas on this, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, based on whether you think the, neg the, neg the negative, apophatic, apophatic theological moment is ultimate, or whether you think the imminent, the preeminence uh, aspect is, is ultimate. I mean, it's helpful to think about it both ways, but we'll come back to the idea of whether this fundamentally is our knowledge of God all negative or is it also positive. She says, in this way, therefore, we can, he can be named by us from creatures, yet not so that the name which signifies him expresses the divine essence in itself in the way that the name man expresses the essence of man in himself, since it signifies the definition which manifests his essence. For the idea expresses by the, expressed by the name is the definition. So what he's saying is, you can basically grasp somewhat, the mind is able to grasp, penetrate metaphysically what a human being is, not comprehensively, but essentially. Like I can say, all of you are rational animals, and you are different from other animals by the fact that you have spiritual operations of intellect and will, and it's essentially, you're an essentially different kind of thing than other animals. Or, an animal is a living sensate being essentially different from a non-living being. The dead cat and the living cat are not essentially the same thing. And we can grasp that. He's saying we can really get a kind of uh, deep penetration of the intellect into the structure of reality of the things around us. 
and our language can name things as they are, but we don't have that kind of relationship with God. You can't, as it were, turn your mind like a flashlight into the essence of God and by the word God denominate directly what God is essentially. Oh, I know what God is. Hey, I know what God is. Hey, I'm a seminarian. Oh, a priest. Of course I know what God is, essentially. They, got, they taught me philosophy. God remains significantly transcendent. And so in some way, certainly he's saying you don't have to use the, no, the notion of quiddity. Right? The grasp of the quiddity, uh, quiditas in Latin means the essence, the quiditative grasp of something is the immediate grasp of its essence. You don't have a quiditative assimilation of the essence of God. So our naming of God doesn't work in the same way as our conceptual apprehension of the things around us by essence. Living thing, non-living thing, human being. Okay, it it works through this um, indirect naming process that works from causes, effects to cause to the cause, and then negates of that cause certain features of finite created reality, and then speaks about the transcendent preeminence of the cause. Now he's just said that. Now he's going to kind of proceed to show us how it works, especially in Article Five, which I'll come to. But before I get there, I want to talk about the. Um, the question of the priority of negative versus positive knowledge. There's a debate in Thomism. I'm trying to find my list of names here. Um, in which different people line up in different ways, especially in the 20th century. About how to think about the negative moment in Aquinas' knowledge of God. And some people say... I mean, there's a certain reading of Aquinas based on the prologue to question three and based also on this use of Dionysius. There's a, there is a, a prevalent argument that effectively Aquinas thinks we may know that God exists but may say virtually nothing of what God is essentially so that fundamentally our knowledge of God is primarily apophatic or negative. Now, the attraction of this way of thinking is twofold. One is to say, as Catholic philosophers, we are not agnostics. We do think reason can penetrate into reality deep, deeply enough to say it's reasonable to believe that God exists. But as Catholic philosophers, we're also not rationalists who think we have comprehensive knowledge of God. On the contrary, the deeper the intellect looks into the structure of reality, the more it realizes that we can't say anything very substantive about who God is. God becomes incredibly enigmatic for the human intellect. Okay, so it's like, on the one hand, we're not agnostic. On the other hand, we're very open to mystery. And the second aspect that's attractive about this way of approaching Aquinas as primarily, you might say metaphysically speaking, an apophatic philosopher, is that it makes great room for revelation. We know precious little about the essence of God philosophically, but if God reveals himself to us then, it, it, it emphasizes the freedom of God to reveal himself to us as Holy Trinity over and above what we can know naturally, philosophically. Okay? Now, the, the great sort of exponent of this view in the early 20th century was Sertilange. Maybe you've seen his book by Sertilange, The Intellectual Life. Um, he then influences Etienne Gilson. So Gilson is 
emphasizes strongly the apophatic negative character of knowledge of God. And this has influenced some modern people you may or may not have heard of or read, but like Herbert McCabe, very influential British Dominican, who writes about negative knowledge of God as the kind of ultimate moment in our philosophical thinking about God. And David Burrell, the CSC priest who taught for years at uh, Notre Dame. And that's just a little list, Sertilange, Gilson, McCabe, Burrell. On the other hand, you have people who emphasize the positive knowledge of God and say, no, listen, uh, Aquinas thinks we do have the capacity to say, to make true ascriptions about God in what God is. I mean, like if I say that God is good, and then I negate of that the significations that I would normally employ to, to use the word goodness for anything in this world. God is not a good sweater. God is not a good chocolate cake. God is not a good human being. Then um, ultimately my, my sense of the word goodness ascribed to God could become a kind of agnostic fog. Yeah, we, we throw the word goodness up toward God like a javelin, but we don't know what it really means. And other thinkers will say, no, we really, when we say that God is good, however meager our knowledge of that reality, philosophically speaking, it really has purchase on reality. I and mean, we can ascribe to God goodness positively in a supereminent way. And the big defender of that position was Jack Maritain. Maritain wrote against Sertilange. They had a little dispute. Uh, you get um, contemporary people. Well, Charles Journet, the great Swiss cardinal, defended the positive knowledge of God in Aquinas. More recently, Rudy Tebelde, who's got a nice book, Aquinas on God, he defends the positive knowledge. There's a number of other people. I try to do that myself in my book, Wisdom in the Face of Modernity. I take strongly the positive side. Um, toward that argument, I'm going to read you a, a little passage that you don't have on the handout. This is from De Potentia Dei on the power of God, question 7, article 5. Aquinas says this, the idea of negation is always based on affirmation, as evinced by the fact that every negative proposition is proved by an affirmative. So, unless the human mind knew something positively about God, it would be unable to deny anything about him. And it would, follow, it would know nothing if nothing that it affirmed about God were positively verified about him. Hence, following Dionysius, we must hold that these terms signify the divine essence, albeit defectively and imperfectly. So let me give you an example. If you say something like, there is no giraffe in this room, and where I'm not talking metaphorically like about the elephant in the room, I'm talking like literally, there is no giraffe in the room, then it requires of me to already have some positive, that's a negation. I'm negating, I'm, I'm denying a reality. I'm denying that there's a giraffe here. But that requires some positive knowledge of what a giraffe is. And even if I say, the phoenix does not exist, there is no such thing as a phoenix, that presupposes I already have positive knowledge of reality and even some positive knowledge of what the definition of a phoenix is based on medieval mythology. So I can negate that the mythological creature of the Middle Ages exists because I know enough about it. So negations build out of affirmations or require affirmations. And to negate things of God, like to say, God is not good in the way of my new pair of shoes is good, means that I already have some knowledge of God as good in some super eminent way. 
So what I'm arguing here is that Aquinas is not quite the agnostic that Circular Launch thinks he is, and maybe you're not worried about that. But uh, if you read more deeply in this kind of Thomistic literature, it's a big debate. It's an interesting debate. How agnostic is the knowledge of God in Aquinas? It's clear that there is a really a kind of um, deep apophaticism in Aquinas. He does think that our knowledge of God by philosophy is very poor, it's indirect, and it's frail. And that does make room for revelation. But he does think also it's real. All right. Let me turn to Article 2. Whether any name can be applied to God substantially. So I've just introduced that little debate. And now I'm going to read some of these paragraphs. And talk about the distinction between the mode of signification and the thing signified. He says, I answer that. Names which are said of God negatively or which signify his relation to creatures do not at all signify his substance, but rather express the distance of the creature from him. Okay. Skip to the next paragraph. But as regards names of God said absolutely and affirmatively as good and wise and the like, various opinions have been held. Some have said that such names, although they're applied to God affirmatively, Nevertheless, have been brought into use more to remove something from God than to deposit something in Him. That's, the, that's kind of the view I was just articulating and disagreeing with. That when you say something, and, and really behind it, he's thinking of Maimonides. Maimonides, 12th century Jewish thinker, 12th and early 13th century Jewish thinker. Maimonides basically thinks whenever you say, like, Maimonides says technically, like, straightforwardly, when you say God is alive, all you mean is, is, is it's only a negative claim. It means you think God is not dead. If you say God is good, all you mean is you think God is not evil. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't involve you actually knowing anything positively and affirmatively about what God is. So what we think are positive descriptions are always ultimately only negative descriptions. If you say God is wise, it means you don't think God is unintelligent. See, that's a pretty radical viewpoint. Hence, they assert that when we say that God lives, we mean that he is not like an inanimate thing. And the same in like manner applies to others. This was taught by Rabbi Moses. Rabbi Moses is what he calls Maimonides. He calls Aristotle a philosopher. He calls Maimonides Rabbi Moses. That was his name, Moses Maimonides. Others say that these names applied to God signify his relationship toward creatures. Thus, in the words, God is good, we mean God is the cause of goodness in things. And the same interpretation applies to other names. So we don't say that God's wise or good in himself. What we're saying is God causes a world that's good. God causes a world in which there's creatures who have wisdom. So God must be somehow like them, but we can't really say anything about God in himself. He says, now both these opinions seem untrue for three reasons. First, because in neither of them could a reason be applied, assigned why some names more than others should be applied to God. For he's assuredly the cause of bodies in the same way as the cause of good things. Therefore, if the words God is good signified no more than God is the cause of things, it might in like manner be said that God is a body. Right? So you say, well, God's, we don't want to say God's good in himself, but God causes a world of good things. So we can say God, we can say, that's what we mean when we say God is good. We say, well, you know, we don't want to say God is a body in himself, but God causes a world in which there's physical bodies. So in that sense, we can say God is a body. People don't make that move, but he's saying if that's your only criteria for why you say God is good, then you don't. You, then you, it's hard to avoid making that move. 
So also to say that he is a body implies that he's not a mere potentiality as his prime that he is a body implies that he's not a mere potentiality as prime matter. Okay. Secondly, because it would follow that all names applied to God would be said of him by way of being taken in a secondary sense as healthy as secondarily said of medicine. Right? I say, is that a healthy medicine? Or is, that, is it healthy for you to eat that? You say, yes, that's a healthy food. Well, about why? Because it causes you to be healthy. But primarily, health is in the body. And he's saying here you would be naming God as good as a, in a secondary way. What's really good is the world. The world's really good. And then God is somehow the mysterious author of that goodness. As opposed to saying what's ultimately good is God and the world participates in goodness or receives its goodness from God. You don't want to make the mistake of naming God as a secondary feature of reality because he gives you what you think is the most important thing, the goodness of the world. If God's okay, well, he's good in that he provides the goodness of the world, which is the primary goodness. Okay. Thirdly, because this is against the invitation, the intention of those who speak of God, for in saying that God lives, they assuredly mean more to say than he than to say that he's the cause of life or that he differs from inanimate bodies. Right. When you say God is alive, you mean to denote I'm sorry, you mean to denote the the life of God. When you say God is good, you mean to denote the goodness of God. You know, people when they give thanks to God for something good that happens in their life, they say, God is so good. They don't mean just that God is not evil. They mean, to, they mean to praise the goodness of God. It would be very liturgically consequential if you held Maimonides' view in some kind of systematic way. <laughs> you know, people going, we praise you, God, for your goodness. Don't say that! <laughs> Heavily qualify that. You're going to get into conceptual idolatry. You create, you're fabricating idols. You can only say that God is the numinous author of realities that are good and that he is in no way evil in himself, but we can't say in any way what, that he is good because we can't predicate that of him substantially. Mm. We'd, we'd end up by expurgating the Bible, right? God is love. Mm -hmm. No. God is not hatred. That's all we're saying. Are you, wait, are you saying God is love? Or, no, he's just, I'm just saying God is not hatred. So, therefore, we must hold a different doctrine that these names signify the divine substance and are predicated substantially of God. Now, that is the key line. He's saying you can speak, you can predicate truth of God substantially. When he means substantially, he means you can say truly by divine naming what God is in himself. If I say God is sovereignly good or God is infinitely wise, I speak of what God is in God's very self. So now you may say, well, now you're backtracking. Before you told us we, we can't grasp the essence of God immediately. And now you're saying you're speaking directly about what God is substantially. Correct. They're both true. We can't grasp the essence. We cannot grasp the essence of God immediately. We speak of God as through a veil, as through a glass darkly. Through the effects of his creation, we derive true knowledge of God. But from those effects, we can speak truly of what God is substantially, even though we don't perceive God immediately. And Aquinas continues, which is proved thus, for these names express God so far as our intellect knows him. Now, our intellect knows God from creatures, so it knows him as far as creatures represent him. But it was shown above that God prepossesses in himself all the perfections of creatures, being himself absolutely and universally perfect. That's question four of the Summa on the infinite perfection of God. 
Hence, every creature represents him and is like him in so far as it possesses some perfection, yet not so far as to represent him as something of the same species and genus. Right? So you, that's why you can't grasp him essentially. Like I can grasp what species, metaphysical species you are. You're a rational animal, spiritual animal. But, and you are like God, made in his image. But I can't grasp from examining you what God is in himself according to species and genus, because he's not the same species and genus as you. He's in some way good as the author of personal goodness in, in creatures, in human beings, but he's not good in the way human beings are, but in some far exceeding way. He says, as the, but as the excelling source of those of, of, of whose form the effects fall short, although they derive some kind of likeness there too, even as the forms of inferior bodies represent the power of the sun. That's a beautiful kind of platonic image. The, you, know, you, you grasp what light is. You never, you, don't look at the, you never see the sun directly. I mean, that's the idea. You're not looking at the sun directly, the sunlight that is God, but you're seeing the light, the intelligible light of God reflected on his cre- in his creatures. Therefore, the aforesaid names signify the divine substance, but in an imperfect man, but in an imperfect manner, even as creatures represent God imperfectly. So when we say God is good, the meaning is not God is the cause of goodness, or God is not evil, but the meaning is whatever good we attribute to creatures pre-exists in God and in a higher way. That's the preeminence. Pervium eminentiae. In a preeminent way, God is utterly transcendently good in a much higher mode. Hence, it does not follow that God is good because he causes goodness, but rather, on the contrary, he causes goodness in things because he is good. As Augustine says, because he is good, we are. So Aquinas will distinguish then between um, the mode of signification and the reality signified. The reality signified, when we speak about the goodness of God, is obviously, based on this article, God himself. If I say God is wise, God is good, God is infinitely perfect, what am I signifying? The res significata is God himself, the deity, the transcendent mystery we call God. The mode of signification is human language that takes its original form from created realities. So I start with the goodness of the sweater, the goodness of the human being, the goodness of... Um, is that a good parking spot for if we're going to the event? Yeah, that's a good parking spot. You know, the good parking spot, uh, the good grade, um, and all kinds of higher or lower forms of goodness. The goodness of the saints, the goodness of the sanctity of little flower. Right? That's a very elevated form of goodness. But the point is, all that falls short of what God is. And yet, taking the modes of signification from these realities that are creaturely, realities of nature and grace, I can begin to signify the eternal goodness of God using the modes of signification drawn from creatures and purify them, purifying them by way of causality, by way of negation, by way of preeminence. And so there's this whole, you might call it this ladder of language. I climb up this ladder of Dionysian uh, causality, uh, VA, of these ways of Dionysian speaking in order to speak of God in a mode that's appropriate to his transcendence. And that's, that's actually just what, Aquinas, if you want to say, where do, where do we see Aquinas doing this? Questions 3 through 11 and 14 through 19. I mean, that's actually what he's doing. In this. Here he's just giving you a little map of what he's doing all the time in, in speaking about the attributes of God. Okay, so let's continue.
and turn to now to the most important article, Article 5. Whether what is said of God and of creatures is univocally predicated of them. Now, okay, here you got to get, there's another, I, I've been talking about a, a threefold distinction from Dionysius. Now I need to talk about a different threefold distinction. There are basically three great theories of naming God. Univocal predication, equivocal predication, and logical predication. Now when we say univocal predication, let's first and foremost get straight that that's not always a bad thing. That's actually something we use all the time. To say uni that I predicate something univocally means univocal. It actually just literally means in the same way of speaking, in the same sense. So if like I say, you know, I am a human being. Are you univocally human in just the way I am? Are we, both, are we equally human? Are we identically human? Are we both essentially human? Yes. Right? You'd be in a funny place if you say, well, look, I am, I'm human. I'm essentially human, and you're analogically human. I mean, we feel that way often about our fellow, you know, fellow uh, personages, but that's not really true. Right? We're all essentially the same kind of thing. So we preach, we, we speak of each other by uh, univocally, correctly, univocally as human. Like, is Christ man? Is Christ human, like us? Yes. Is he univocally, is that equivocal? Are you saying, are you speaking equivocally? Are analogically or univocally? I'm speaking univocally. Sorry, yeah, I'm speaking univocally. Christ is univocally human. He has essentially the same human nature as us. So univocity is when you use language to apply it in the same sense to different things, okay? Equivocity is when really there's nothing that carries over. Like I say, um, the man in the portrait there. Now you see the man in the portrait? That's not a man, actually. That's paint. That's paint. It's paint representing a man, right? So I'm speaking equivocally, technically speaking. Right? And my, so the two great schools of thought outside of Thomism about naming God, one is univocal predication theory and one is equivocal predication theory. The great father of univocal predication theory is Avicenna, the 12th century Muslim thinker, who in turn deeply influences Duns Scotus, the great Franciscan uh, metaphysician. And Avicenna and Scotus are worried that if you don't have some kind of univocity at the heart of your naming of God, then you don't have enough carryover from the significations of the things of this world into the significations of God. So like when you talk about the goodness of this world and the goodness of God, Avicenna and Scotus want to have something univocal about what you mean by goodness, because otherwise they're worried you won't have enough purchase on God conceptually when you say God is good. So there's got to be something univocally the same, univocally identical, when you talk about the goodness of God and the goodness of creatures. Now for Thomas, that seems to be a little bit like fingernails and chalkboard, because it's saying there's something kind of almost essentially the same in God and creatures, as if there were some essence or form of goodness that you could identify that would be identical in both. I tend to be pretty anti-Scotus on this point. Not on all points, but on this one. Now, on the other hand, you have the, the, the person who's worried about conceptual idolatry and saying, you're trying to know too much about the divine. God is hidden and unknowable. And that's equivocity theory, and that's Moses Maimonides. And by the way, you find both these theories around today. Jean-Luc Mario, the Catholic philosopher, is very influenced by equivocity theory. 
He reads Dionysus the Areopagite very much in the direction of someone like Maimonides. Richard Swinburne, other uh, analytic philosophers, follow Scotus and have a univocity theory. The equivocity theory we've already seen. It means you really can't describe any divine names to God. Essentially, you can't denote what God is substantially. Okay, so Aquinas is going to aim between the two. It's, it's, it's like lining up two extremes opposed to each other, and he's going to, he's going to take a, a middle position, and that's analog, analogy theory, the analogical theory. And, say, and that's to say, we name God as being both like and unlike creatures because God in himself is both unlike and like creatures. There's a real similitude between God and creation. Creation is like God because creation comes from God, and so we can truly name God from the creatures that are similar to God in some way. But we have to practice these Dionysian negations in order to say in what way God is also unlike the world. And so we denote him not univocally, like I say you and I are both essentially human, not equivocally, like saying I'm human and you're not to the man on the wall, but saying analogically uh, that God is good in a way that is both very unlike and in some way like the goodness of creatures. And that's what he's going he's gonna, to um, articulate here. Now this is a long article, and we're going we're gonna to sort of uh, briskly go through the corpus. I'll skip some parts as we go. I answer that univocal predication is impossible between God and creatures. Okay, so there he's just brutal. He just says no to Avicenna. It's not happening. Okay? The reason of this is that every effect which is not a proportioned result of the power of the efficient cause receives the similitude of the agent not in its full degree, but in a measure that falls short. He gives an example sometimes of the, the heat of the sun. Like the sun is heating up the world, but that doesn't make you and I a, re a fusional reaction of, of energy. You know, I, I'm receiving the sunlight, but that doesn't mean I am myself a sun. S-U-N. And you, we're all receiving being from God, but that doesn't mean we are the being of God. So that what is divided and multiplied in the effects resides in the agent simply in an unvaried manner. For example, the sun, by the exercise of its one power, produces manifold and various forms of sublunary things. In the same way, as was said above, all perfections existing in creatures divided and multiplied pre-exist in God unitedly. None of us has the perfections of God in himself. But we all have perfections in ourselves from God. Hence, when any name expressing perfection is applied to a creature, it signifies that perfection distinct from the others according to the nature of its definition. So, we apply wise to a man. We signify some perfection distinct from a man's essence. Like, none of you can say, I am wisdom. I am wisdom. I am wisdom. Right? Because wisdom in you is a property. You can say, after a few years of seminary, I've gotten a little bit wiser. I have a little bit of wisdom. The, the regular beatings did help, after all. I accept that reluctantly. I've acquired some wisdom, frail though it may be in my personality. So it's a property, or in, in terms of an accident. But God can say, I am wisdom. He says things like that to Catherine of Siena in the dialogue. I am wisdom. And it's true of God, because it's true of him substantially. So no perfection of wisdom in us could ever um, sufficiently uh, give us a portrait of what God is substantially. The wisest of human beings, 
the Aristotles and Aquinas's, Augustine's and the Catherine Siena's of the world give us some kind of insight into the wisdom of God that might be higher, but they aren't themselves adequate to what God is in his substantial wisdom. He goes on, but when we apply wise to God, we do not mean to signify anything distinct from his essence or power or being. That's what I just said. And thus, when the term wise applied to, is applied to man, in some degree it circumscribes and comprehends the things signified, you can kind of understand human wisdom. I can listen to a, a person lecture, a philosopher comes to Catholic University of America, and I go and listen to him, I think, that is a wise person. And I can kind of understand what I'm talking about. But when I say God is wise, we're in a wholly other order, because God is unlike creatures in that his wisdom is never just a property of himself, but it's something substantial and infinite. And it, it's the author of reality. It's his wisdom that begot the world. So this is not the case when it's applied to God that I have a comprehensive knowledge. But it leaves the things signified as uncomprehended and as exceeding the signification of the name. So he's saying you can name God as wise, but you don't have a comprehensive in the sense of a, a kind of enc uh, encompassing understanding of what you're talking about. It's, it's numinous. It remains, in fact, it remains unsatisfying. It's a way, when you start talking about good, the goodness of God, we kind of, mm, okay, God is good, yeah, I know that. But actually, the problem, the reason it's not that interesting in a way, or it cannot be that interesting to think about things like the goodness of God, is because we don't actually know it that well. It's not an experience. It's something we can conclude from sound philosophy, but God remains hidden. That's why it's something like the Eucharist, if you have an experience of Christ in the Eucharist, and, I mean, sometimes we don't, of course, but sometimes in Eucharistic adoration you have a kind of experience of the presence of Christ, and you're consoled, and then you're experiencing something of the mystery of the goodness of God by grace in a more intensive way. And that's, in a way, it's much more immediate than philosophy. Now, that's not contrary to saying God is good philosophically, and reasoning, even in a certain way, there is a certain philosophical contemplation of the goodness of God. But it's a lot poorer, it's a lot poorer than, say, Eucharistic contemplation of the goodness of God. Even though Eucharistic contemplation is in the faith, it's still often more experiential. It's less derivative. Hence, it's evident that this term wise is not applied in the same way to God and to man. And the same applies to other, to other terms. Now, he goes on to attack equivocation theory. And I'm going to skip that because I've already kind of taken uh, a shot at that in the last article. He has some very strong arguments against, um, against Maimonidean theory. But he finishes that paragraph saying, Therefore it must be said that these names are said of God and creatures in an analogous sense. That's to say, according to proportion. Now he's going to talk in this last paragraph, which I'm going to finish with. Um, he's going to talk about the anal analogy theory. He says, now there's two ways of speaking analogously. Either according as many things are proportioned to one, for example, healthy is predicated of medicine and urine. This is, this is Aristotle's example of the animal. He says you have a, it's like a veterinary example. You have a sick animal, you give it medicine, and it gets better. So it's medicine is health-inducing. And then there's the, and he says because the, the urine, it's an unfortunate example, I suppose, but it's, it's a famous example, that, that the urine of the animal is a sign of health. So he says one thing is the cause of health, the other thing is the sign of health. And we, cause, we call these different things healthy in different ways. And he says, uh, and accordingly, thus health is said of medicine and an animal, since medicine is the cause of health in the animal body. 
And in this way, some things are said of God and creatures analogically and not in a purely equivocal and in a purely univocal sense. So you can talk about the healthy medicine and the healthy animal, just as you can talk about a God is here a little bit like the medicine, um, in that he's the cause of the, the medicine's the cause of health in the animal. The problem is, health really pertains primarily to an animal and not to a medicine. And we don't say goodness pertains primarily to a creature and not to God. He says, for we name God from creatures, since whatever is said of God and creatures is said according as there is some relation of the creature to God as to its principle and cause, wherein all the perfections of things pre-exist excellently. Sorry, so yeah, what he did there was he talked about, um, he talks about two, I mean, I guess I think more in terms of Aristotle's metaphysics. There's basically two ways to denote analogy. One is where you've got different things you predicate, say, being of goodness of many things, but you predicate to one thing especially. And the other way is the causal. It's you predicate goodness of one thing because it's caused by another. So the first example, he, does, he, just, he just says this very briefly here, but let's make it a little more concrete. The first example is the goodness of your properties. Right? So um, we say, you know, is Joseph generous? Yes, Joseph is generous. You know, we're, we're formators in scenario we're doing evaluations. Is, is Joseph loquacious? Joseph is loquacious. Is Joseph um, enthusiastic? Joseph is enthusiastic. All right, but the point is that we can say all these things about you are good, but they're fundamentally lodged in something more, more basic, which is your substance, your very being. You're, is he a good person? Well, he's, he's, he's a fallen human being and a sinner, but there's a lot of good in him, and it's manifest through his being generous, loquacious, and, and zealous, or whatever. Okay, so we can say truly the goodness of your generosity is different than the goodness of your um, loquaciousness, but all those things are good in some fundamental way because your very being is good, your very substance is good, as being a good creature created by God in his image. He doesn't want to say that's the way we attribute goodness to God primarily because he doesn't want to say that good, the goodness of the things of the world somehow inhere in God. Or that God is understood to be um, good as in some way giving goodness to a reality. Well, yeah, I'll skip that thought and move on. The other form of goodness is one of an effect proportion to a cause. And that's uh, kind of looking at um, the, the property as depending upon the substance, you might say. So like, I could say, um, does my generosity, does your generosity exist? Yes, it exists. It's truly existently true. It's true in being that you are generous. But it comes from the more fundamental being of your substance. So then you have it, not just that you're saying being exists in multiple ways, sometimes it's an accident, sometimes it's a substance, and it's all sort of related to the substance. You're saying the substance is the cause of the being of the accident. It's kind of two different logical optics. That's the way I take it here. Two different logical ways of thinking about predication of being. And he's saying it's really in the latter sense that we say that God is, is good or exists in some preeminent way because he's, he's the proportionate, he's the cause of the effect in the creature. I'll read, I'm going back to the middle of the paragraph. For we can name God only from creatures, since whatever is said of God in creatures is said according as there is some relation of the creature to God as its principle and cause, wherein all the perfections of things pre-exist excellently. 
Now, this mode of community is a mean between pure equivocation and, pure, and simple unification. For in analogies, the idea is not, as in univocals, one and the same. Like, you know, we're all human beings here, identically human. That's not what we're saying when we talk about the goodness of God and the goodness of creatures. Yet it is not totally diverse as in equivocals. Like, that's not really a human being. Yeah. So God would not really be good. He would just, when I say he's, he's good, all I mean he's not evil. Yet it's not totally diverse as in equivocals, but the name which is thus used in a multiple sense signifies various proportions to some one thing. So healthy is applied to urine to signify as a sign of animal health, but applied to medicine it signifies the cause of the same health. And so you can signify goodness in the effect or in the cause. Or in, in, an, in a further effect. So like, I can say, God is good, God causes you to be good, and you cause things that are good to happen. Right? So there are good effects that stem from human beings, who are themselves in some way good, who are themselves the effects of a transcendent goodness. And the similitude between the creature and the creator is one in which there's an infinite distance between that which is predicated of the creature and that which is predicated of the creator. And yet, there is a real similitude because the creature is somehow like the creator. So we can't just transfer the perfections of creatures directly onto God univocally, but we, can't, we don't need to fall into conceptual agnosticism and say we can say nothing about God. Rather, we can say things of God by analogy. Let me give you one last um, little segment here. I'm going to open for questions in a minute. I'm going to give one little segment here. We're going to look at question 11. Now, this is just interesting because he asks the question, he refers to Exodus 3.14 and 3.15. This is the last page of the handout. Now, you may not realize it, but in Exodus 3.14 and 3.15, Moses is given actually two names of God in a certain way. There's, he said, God says to Moses, I am he who is. Now that that's, and can be interpreted other ways. Some people interpret it to be, I am who I am. It's an ev evasive answer. Or I will be who I will be. There are multiple significations possible, interpretations possible. But it's possible if you talk to an Aramaic, or a, sorry, an ancient Hebrew uh, uh, grammar expert, it is possible to interpret the name the way the Christian mainstream patristic tradition did. I am he who is. I am the one who is. But there's also, he then says afterwards, if you look in 315, he says, I am. Now that's the, that's the tetragrammaton, the, the name that is frequently not repeated, you know, typically not repeated. Okay, so you have him name himself, I am he who is, and then I am. That's the name we frequently translate by the Lord. The Lord, that's the euphemistic phrase throughout the, the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now he says here, is he who is, I am he who is, is that the most proper name of God? And he says, I answer that. The name he who is, is the most proper name of God for three reasons. First, because of its signification. For it does not signify some form, that means some nature, but being itself. Hence, since the being of God is his very essence, which can be said of no other being, it is clear that among other names, this one is most properly, this one most properly names God, for everything is named according to its essence. So, what are you essentially a human being? Kangaroo is essentially an animal. Uh, plant, you know, we could say rose bush is essentially a plant. Sun is a, essentially a, a non-living element of the world. 
physical being. Okay? But God, all of us, so the diff, we all receive being from God. In all of us, being is a gift, existence. And no one here could say, it is of the essence of the kind of thing I am just to exist. Or, I am the cause of my own existence. I will always be because I cause myself to be. Or, I can be the, the generation of my own being. No. All of us receive our existence from another, and none of us can maintain ourselves in being forever. In fact, we know we die, so in some real sense we cease to be. As where God is the author of being who gives being and possesses being eternally in his very self by necessity. And so it is of the essence of what God is to exist. So essence pertains to God essentially. I am he who is. I am he who is existence, who possesses the plenitude of being eternally. Secondly, because of its universality, for all of the names are less universal or, if convertible with it, add something above it, at least an idea. So, like, for example, you know, you say God is good. Okay, well, yeah, everything that exists is in some way good. But everything that is anything, in any way, is something that exists. So when you talk about existence, you're talking about something most universal in reality. And so when you talk about God as the universal author of reality, you talk about God as he who is. God is he who is and who can give existence to everything else that is in the world. Hence, Damascene says, John Damascene says, that he who is is predicated of all names applied to God, for comprehending all in, it, in itself, it contains being itself as an infinite and indeterminate sea of substance. That's that famous image of Aquinas in this, this famous passage where he says, you know, basically says, God is an infinite sea of existence. Now, by any other name, some mode of, subsistence, of substance is expressed determinately, whereas the name he who is determines no mode of being, like being a kangaroo, or being the sun, or being wise, but is related indeterminately to all. And this is why it names the infinite ocean of substance, that God is the infinite sea of being. Thirdly, from its consignification, for it signifies being in the present, and this above all property applies to God, whose being knows past and future. I am he who is, meaning it's the eternal I am of God who always is, and who has in himself, who is in himself the cause of all past and present events, all that is, and who knows the entire future as the cause of the future. He goes on to say in reply objection one, and I'll finish here. That he who is is the name of God most pro more properly than the name God, both as regards the source, namely being, and as regards the mode of signification and consignification. But as regards the object intended, the name God is more proper, as it is, as it is, as it is supposed to signify the divine nature. Now that, I just want to mention to you, God for Aquinas is not a proper name. Now by proper name, I mean something like Stephen, Peter, Henry, Gerard. Right? You have a proper name. I have a proper name. Thomas, you have a proper name. Okay. God is not a proper name for a client. Like when I say, oh God, come to my assistance. I'm not calling God by a distinctive name like Peter or Paul or Andrew. I'm calling God by the divine nature. It's basically, I'm saying, oh deity, oh divine nature, come to my assistance. He thinks it names the nature of God. To talk about deus, deity, is to call God. Now, there was a famous, so there's a famous 
English philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe. And she was having this conversation with a Dominican philosopher. And apparently, so it was told to me. And they were arguing about whether God is a, is a proper name. And, and he was saying it was, that God is a personal name. Because you, you call God personally. And, and she said, no, it's, it's for Aquinas, it's a, it's a common name. It's a natural term. It's a term of God's nature, as I've just shown you, Aquinas says. And he said, well, if that were the case, how could we call God, upon God personally? Because if you use a nature term, how can you address someone personally? And she said, oh, priest, oh, priest, you are so stupid. <laughs> you can use a nature term. To do the, oh, you there, sir, man, oh, man, right? So, oh, God, we, we call God, we denominate God by his unique nature, the, the divinity, the deity. Now that's Aquinas' view. Now he doesn't think that he doesn't think that that means we're not speaking to God personally. He just thinks we speak to God personally when we call God God through the medium of denoting Him in His in the aspect of His uniqueness and His divine nature. There's not other gods. It's okay. There's only one God. So when you call God by His the term of His nature, you are talking to Him in His singularity. So one name, He who is, denotes God's infinite existence, His His necessary being, the mystery of His being. Another denominates his nature, his essence, the divine nature, the one God. Oh God, the one God. And another term is the tetragrammaton. He says, uh, and still more proper is the name tetragrammaton, imposed to signify the substance itself of God, incommunicable, and if one may speak, so speak, singular. And that's the proper name of God. So he thinks you don't have a philosophical knowledge of the proper name of God, the way I can know that you're Peter or John or Andrew. I don't know God's name. Because I don't have a philosophical immediate knowledge of God. But God could reveal to, in the Mosaic Revelation, who he is and give us his, his proper name. And in that, he denotes himself in his personal singularity as related to Israel and as related to us. And it's interesting that the New Testament claims that that divine name is recapitulated and, re, and re, re-denominated, you might say, in the name Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the new revelation of the name of God, and that in meeting Jesus, we meet the one God, he who is, who revealed himself to Moses as the one, the eternal one who is. We now meet in his own person, in the person of Jesus, God made man. It's very interesting, Aquinas will say this elsewhere. So we actually encounter the, the singularity of God in his revelation of the Tetragrammaton in the burning bush, in and through the incarnation of God and his humanity, speaking to us as the person of Jesus.